Welcome to your Relationship Lovecast by True Potential, the weekly web show and podcast that explores relationships and wellness, featuring in-depth interviews with acclaimed authors, wellness experts, health influencers, and spiritual leaders so that you can create a relationship and life you love. And now your host, Andrea Carella. Welcome to Episode 17 of your Relationship Lovecast. Oftentimes, couples who are parents deal with the struggle of getting their baby or their toddler to sleep, and this can lead to a lot of stress, a lot of lack of sleep, as well as interpersonal challenges that arise in the couplehood and in the parenthood process. Now, this can impact couples across the world and around the globe. And I know this because I remember even coming back on the plane from the Mind Valley Awesomeness Fest conference in Costa Rica this past weekend and hearing a baby crying nonstop on the plane. So I know the importance of being able to settle down a baby and the importance of a good night's rest, one for the baby and then two for the parents. So today on our show, I've invited Kim West, who is known as the Sleep Lady. For 17 years, she has personally helped tens of thousands of families gently find sleep. She has sold over 100,000 copies of her book, including Good Night, Sleep Tight, which families have referred to as the Sleep Bible. Her sleep methods have been very effective, one of them known as the Sleep Lady Shuffle, which is gentle, accessible, and can be catered to your family and to your child. Good sleep habits and gentle sleep coaching can build a positive parent-child attachment and encourage a strong bond. Her sleep methods do not involve crying it out, and it's gentle and effective. Thank you, Kim, so much for being on today's show. Thank you, Andrea, for inviting me. Great. Glad to have you. Now, I know a lot of our listeners are uh, either parents already or they will be soon to be parents and some of, and this information will be very relevant to them. And I'm curious what really inspired you to focus on improving baby's sleep. I was a uh, clinical social worker or I still am at the time and I was pregnant about 6 months pregnant with my first child and my older brother and his wife had just had their first child and he they came to visit and he was three months old and he didn't sleep and they were a wreck they were saying things like you know the mom's like denise said i'm gonna have to quit my job and they're never having any more children and this is luckily to this day, a very happy couple, I was just, un- uh, that terrified me. Mm. Uh, and I, cause I really liked my sleep. Right. So did my husband. And so I thought, well, I gotta have things be different for me. Cause that's what we all wish. Right. Right. <laughs> and then, and I thought, well, maybe my background in, you know, family systems and child development will help me. And then I had my first child cause you really can't prepare until you're right in it, in it. Mm. you know, you can do some reading, but you know, then your each child is different, each baby is different. And then I had my first baby. She, you know, was jaundice and difficulty nursing and very sleepy baby. And I got, I would like to think, as well intended but bad advice. And things really kind of unraveled for me with her feeding and sleeping and my ability to sleep. And I just decided I 
I had to figure out a different way. You know, long, you know, of course, we all sort of experiment with right. our first child. And I kind of did things a little bit differently. I followed my my gut and what I knew from my education. And I decided that if it wasn't going to get, if it didn't get better, I'd go back to the pediatrician and come up with something else. And it really, it, it worked for her and I. You know, I continued to nurse her and carry her and, you know, have all the wonderful parts of bonding and attachment and got her on a routine and she started sleeping well. And then I started to help all my friends and then my friends of my friends. And then um, Denise, my sister-in-law, of course, I helped her. She said, oh, can't you, um, I think you should add this to your practice because I had started a private practice. I was like, well, I'm not sure. Maybe I was lucky. Let me have this second baby. And I had my second baby with horrible reflux and really mm. put me in my place. And as I say, she made she made me be a better sleep lady. Mm. And then I knew I was on to, after I got her reflux under control, then I really focused on her, her sleep. And then I started to hear from people I no longer knew who their friend was. Mm. Uh, and that's when I added it um, uh, to my practice. And I would imagine that so many people on the call have either have experienced that or fear that that might be the, their experience. So oh. knowing that you've gone through it and have some really helpful resources to basically help overcome some of those things without having to go through the suffering portion of it is going to be very helpful for a lot of people. Absolutely. I think just having sometimes realistic expectations. Mm. I mean, I know that I was not aware of how much babies cry, even mm. healthy happy, well-cared-for babies cry a lot. I just, even knowing that and, and sleep expectations and what, you know, part of sleep develops when, I think is really helpful. Right. It helps you have realistic expectations yeah, rather than thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how much sleep should a baby get? And what is the ideal sleep routine for a newborn, for a one-year-old, for a toddler, for a four-year-old? Mm-hmm. So the National Sleep Foundation a few years ago came out with new recommended ranges of sleep. They go like this. Uh, zero to three months is a total, meaning day and night, of 14 to 17 hours. Mm. So they made the range bigger. They talk about about eight and a half at night and seven during the day, obviously spread out over multiple naps. And then four to 11 months, it's 12 to 15 hours total, 11 at night, three and a quarter during the day, something like this. And then it goes, pretty much they stay at about 10 and a half, 11 hours um, at night mm -hmm. and until about four years of age when they're, because they're still napping. They have, usually babies have two naps, two to three naps from six to nine months. And then they go to one nap or two naps from nine to 15 to 18 months. Then they go to one nap somewhere between 15 to 18 months and they stay at one nap. Well, the average age to get rid of the nap is around four years of age. I've seen a decent number of three and a half year olds. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at that same time, around 10 to 11 hours of sleep at night, mm -hmm. a lot of sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so I would imagine that for parents really being aware of that so that they can be prepared to reorganize their schedule in a way to accommodate that. 
going to be really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I find that it really wor only works for the first three or four months, unless you have an incredibly easy angel tempered baby, which, you know, everyone may get, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, where you can really bring them everywhere in the first few months. Oh, we went out. I went out to lunch with friends or we brought them out to a restaurant. They slept in the car seat or the stroller and it was great. That works for about three or four months. And then your child becomes more aware. Their sleep development changes mm. and they start to need to be, you know, in bed, quiet, dark, you know, environment so that they can go to sleep around the same time. And it tends to be earlier than we go to sleep. Right. That kind of evolves over time. Now, what is the sleep lady technique? And can you share some of the tips that our listeners can implement in their own mm -hmm. lives and in their own homes? My publisher gave my technique the name because, you know, people always like, or publishers specifically like cute names for things. So it's called the sleep lady shuffle. If you look at, you know, even behavioral modification in behavioral psych, how we ch can change behavior. It's extinction, which you'll certainly see that in sleep training as an, a method of choice too, which is, you know, put your baby in awake and leave and don't go in all night. Uh, that's ex full extinction. It's the, they say it's the most successful because we as the parent can't quote unquote mess it up by, you know, going in and doing four or, you know, potentially training the child to cry. So a lot of parents can't do that because it just plain old feels bad. And in some children, I think it also just doesn't work for, and you'd hate to have a child crying for long amounts of time with no response from the parent. Although granted, I know that, that every parent will hear about the miraculous child that, oh, they cried three minutes and slept through the night. We did it in one night which I always think is fabulous, but not very realistic and not the average. So that's one method. The other one is graduated extinction. In the U.S., it's called Ferberizing Your Child, Dr. Ferber. He came out with actually the first sleep training book. And that's where you put your baby in awake and you go in and you check on them in timed increments and you increase the time every night till they learn how to put themselves to sleep. And then my method comes more under fading, where you put your baby in drowsy but awake. Everyone will tell you that. Mm. And I usually start at bedtime, not at naps, after a great day of naps. And, and then uh, you stay with them, offering physical and verbal reassurance, patting, shushing, singing, it's okay, picking up to calm if necessary until they're asleep and then gradually moving out every few days as you do less and less and they incorporate more of the skill of doing it for themselves. And is this a progression that you start with the first one, the second one, and then the third one, or is it you choose which method that seems uh, aligned? Question. Yeah. I think you choose the method that is the right match for your child's temperament, mm. your own parenting philosophies, your own tolerances, and most importantly, what you can follow through with consistently. Mm. So I think what's made me very popular over the years is that the parents who say, I either tried cry it out or, and it didn't work, or I couldn't do it, or B, I can't do it. 
And, but at the same time, I'm falling to my knees in sleep deprivation. So we have nothing to lose by trying something gentle. And if a parent says, I'm not sure, what do you think, Kim? I'll say, well, let's start off gentle because it will give you an opportunity to learn about your child. And then we can always decide like, hmm, you know what? My child's doing okay. If I laid on the floor or how about that time I sat in there and I had to go to the girls room and I ran out to the girls room and came back and they fell asleep and we can start, we can move to more graduated extinction. I've never started off a family with extinction usually, but just because that's just not been my, my specialty. Mm, Right. Now, what would you say the benefits are to a couple in their relationship if they apply the sleep lady technique in their, in their life, in the home? How does it impact them if they use that? If they don't, what could be the impact about parents being proactive about this? Sleep coach their child, you mean? Right, exactly. Yeah. How does it affect the environment and potentially the parenting and the relationship? That's a great question. I think... Uh, and I didn't intend for this to be it, but I have saved a lot of marriages. Mm-hmm. I've had so many parents say to me, we're on the brink of divorce, Kim. We, you know, because as you probably know, Andrea, mm-hmm. as a as a therapist yourself and, and the parents who've ever been sleep deprived enough, but when you are sleep deprived, you are, you show signs of depression mm-hmm. and you're irritable, low attention span, you know, you just don't have a lot of of energy, low sex drive, like all, you know, all things that are hard when you're also adjusting to a baby, you know, Mm -hmm. not to mention if you've gone back to work and, you know, the safety issues with driving in the car when you're sleep deprived. You take that and, you know, parents who are up multiple times a night and then try to go to work the next morning. Lots of couples are fighting. They're blaming each other. You know, I told you not to, we should have done cry it out or stop nursing the baby to sleep or all kinds of, all kinds of things. So I think that sleep can really just transform an entire family. And I, the way I work with families is I, I really like to work with both parents together so that they are a united front. Uh, We create our plan together during the waking hours, not at two in the morning when we're not at our best. And we're really supporting each other through the process. And I think it also helps the father also to find ways to calm and nurture and soothe the child that might be different than, for instance, the mom who can breastfeed. So I think it really deepens the relationship between parent and child. And then, of course, I think it strengthens the parents because, you know, they're a united front. Right. Absolutely. And I would imagine that having those opportunities when the baby is a newborn or one-year-old or two-year-old, that that helps them throughout the developmental stages as the child grows, how they collaborate together in parenting in their teenage years even, or and so on. Absolutely. I mean, I talk all the time about, particularly with, let's say, toddlers that I'm working with about the importance of consistency. And I often am doing a lot of education about attachment and secure attachment Um, And being a united front and not allowing a child to split mother and father. And I always tell them that this is great practice for when your kids are teenagers. And I know that seems like it's going to be forever away, but it it really will be here before you know it. And it lays uh, lays great groundwork now. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And what what causes uh, a baby to have difficulty falling asleep or to wake up in the middle of the night? And how do you prevent those things from happening? Yeah. So you would think that this would all be sort of natural, right? Like, well, I don't know. Do I really work at going to sleep? Now, um, if you said, no, I, I don't, I just, it comes easily to me, then you've probably never had, a, you know, insomnia. People with insomnia will know exactly what I'm talking about. But in general, putting yourself to sleep is a learned skill. I usually tell parents, think back before the days of having a child. And let's say you had to get up really early to get a flight or had a meeting. And so you thought, well, I'm going to try to go to bed earlier. And so you didn't wait until you were really tired, which, by the way, is what most of us do. And you had maybe you took a shower, read, read a book, watched some TV, and then you had to do something with your thoughts to turn off your mind. So you really are doing things. And those rituals help to also physically tell our body to slow down and secrete melatonin, the drowsy making hormone. And then we're doing the parts with, with our thoughts and our body. This is the same for our children. If we, and I do believe that in the beginning with our newborns, it is our job to help put them to sleep. If you breastfeed a baby, you have all of the great relaxing hormones to help you and the baby go to sleep. Just the act of giving a warm formula bottle in a cool, in a you know dim lit room at the end of the day, it's all you know comforting rituals. Uh, but if we always did that and we held them to sleep and rocked them to sleep and fed them to sleep or patted their back to sleep or laid down with them to sleep when they're older, then they're going to have that first partial arousal during the night, which happens at about three to four, every three to four hours once a baby is around four months of age. So they'll start to wake up and they're going to need you to put them back to sleep. If you rocked or nursed or bottle fed them to sleep at bedtime, you're going to have to do the same thing when they wake up in the middle of the night. Because after all, they don't know how to do it unless you come in and do that thing you always do. Mm. And so, as you know, we have these arousals through, throughout the night. Mm. And the same for our naps or for our children's naps. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll see them having what I like to call disaster naps. So 30, 45 minute naps, they wake up. Well, really 20, 30 minutes mm -hmm. that they wake up and they don't know how to go back to sleep. A lot of parents will say to me, you know, Kim, bedtime is okay. It's these middle of the nights that are just, you know, are, you know, really making us tired and frustrated. And, and we're talking about, let's say, you know, a 10 month old mm -hmm. who's waking up four or five times during the night. Mm. And I ask them about bedtime. They'll say, oh, yeah, well, it's a piece of cake at bedtime. We just feed him and rock him and put him in his crib asleep. Mm -hmm. And so then usually we'll start there mm -hmm. because the easiest time to learn to put yourself to sleep is at bedtime. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have the whole day, you have what's called sleep pressure built up. And so you, you know, you can coach your child then so that they can begin to learn the skill and then can start to apply it in the middle of the night. Mm. And as the child gets older and they move away from the bottle and so on, how do you create new associations as they age so that they don't depend on that to be able to go to sleep? Yeah. Well, I'm a really big proponent of creating bedtime routines. Really, you can do it almost from the beginning. Even if it's just, I dim the lights, 
I pull down the shades. You know, I speak differently and quieter, right, in the beginning. And then the, and when they're very little, you're going to feed them to sleep. And then as uh, they get older, you might want to try, uh, begin to stop feeding them to sleep. But maybe having a, a book with the light on, or I mean a bottle with the light on, and then putting them in their sleep sack or, or swaddling them, depending on their age, or putting them reading a little book to help them to to slow down and then into bed and lights off. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a really, I, I just love the whole idea of books. Mm-hmm. You know, they've just done such great research on, you know, they continue to, of course, on helping our children to learn to be, um, to read, but also in terms of imagination and actual picture books. You can do this really quite early on, very simplistic sing-songy books that you can do after, let's say, a bottle or a breastfeeding. Mm, right. And I think that the consistency is key because that's what creates that predictability for the child rather than it changing all the time, either the right. time so, or the pattern or the routine. Yeah. So two to three steps every night at around the same time. Right. Yeah, I know I've I've spoke with uh, one of my neighbors um, several weeks ago, and their children are now five and six. And he was talking about relationships and how their relationships since they became parents, he basically was talking about, you know, the sleep deprivation and how if you're not sleeping well, how it impacts your relationship and how it impacts your parenting and your whole rhythm. He basically said, I, I feel like I'm complete I've been off for several years. And so being able yeah. to to have the the tools to the ritual, the routines, the the roadmap, so to speak, can help eliminate some of that distress. Absolutely. I mean, even to the point where parents have said to me, you know, can't even remember the last time we had like a nice conversation. Or be able to go out to dinner because you can't leave your baby with a babysitter because the babysitter can't put them to sleep. Mm. Once the child learns how to put themselves to sleep and then sleeps through the night, you can go out to dinner, you can get a babysitter, you can. I remember one family said to me, Oh my gosh, we put our baby to bed and she went to sleep in like under 10 minutes and we sat in the living room and it was 7 30 and we looked at each other and we were like, now what? Who are you? What hi, we talk hi about? again. <laughs> right. Yeah. The relationship can continue to grow and yeah. it's not all about being a parent. It can also be about being a couple. Absolutely. And I th- always think that that's the, really one of the best gifts that we can give our children is to be happily married. Mm, and to sleep well. <laughs> well, yeah, which will be part of it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what what strategies help improve a baby's sleep naturally and develop good sleep habits? I know you spoke about some of them. Are there any others that jump out? I think that in the beginning, it's about, uh, I think the first task in the first few months, besides, of course, healing physically, from labor and delivery as a mom, and then figuring out sort of how you do this as a couple with each other, and of course, how to help your child grow and eat and poop and pee, sleep and do all the things that little babies do. I think your first sort of sleep task is helping them differentiate between day and night. 
That's a big one because their circadian rhythm, their internal clock is not developed. They're not producing and secreting their own melatonin in the beginning. We have to be their external clock. You know, really having exposure to light, waking them up for a feeding during the day. I know you're not supposed you hear, don't wake a sleeping baby. I think you should if if you don't want them to miss a feeding. You know, you're sort of saying, oh, let's have those big stretches at night if we can. And then later on, it's sort of figuring out like, oh, when's the bedtime window and and kind of creating your day around building up to being well fed, well napped and ready for bed at their magical bedtime window, because there really is one and it becomes earlier as they get older. Mm. I think those are important things. And I think also protecting their need for sleep and providing good sleep-friendly environment and a, and a good friend, sleep-friendly schedule that's in sync with the baby's needs. So it really does mean like you got to get home in time for bedtime because when you miss bedtime for enough nights in a row, they start waking up more at night and waking too early in the morning. It doesn't end up being worth it, just like naps too. A lot of people think, oh, well, uh, and and sometimes well-intended strangers will tell us this. Oh, well, if your baby's not sleeping well at night, skip the naps, mm. which is actually the exact opposite of what you should do. Mm. A well-napped baby will not face bedtime as overtired and therefore not secrete all those alerting hormones, which will make it harder for them to go to sleep and then will make them wake up more during the night. Mm. So it's not logical, but it's true scientifically. So a well-napped baby who goes to bed early enough and from a wakeful state will sleep better and longer at night. Mm, mm-hmm. Right, because it sounds like they're, they get into a rhythm. And so it's not that they're so utterly exhausted by the time that they get to sleep that they're, they're able to, to secrete and to be able to incorporate yeah. that rhythm in that yeah, throughout well, we, the night. Yeah, yeah, we have that internal clock. All of us do, no matter where you are in the world. And it's quite rigid. And it doesn't like it when we operate off mode. If I'm sleeping when I should be awake, like I always say, if I took a nap from 6 to 8 p.m., I'm going to wake up feeling groggy, disoriented, not sure if it was worth it. When is my bedtime now? So it matters when you sleep, which is why our, our baby and our children should nap around the same time, go to bed around the same time, wake up around the same time, which by the way, so are we, Mm -hmm. um, ideally, Mm -hmm. in order to be in sync with that clock. And then the the other part or the other half of that circadian rhythm clock is if you are awake when you should be asleep. Remember back in the day, maybe, you know, college or where you got like a second wind, you know, where you're staying up to study uh, so, you know, that was, it's very hard to go to sleep when you get that second win, because if the body doesn't see any signs of going to sleep, it will start to secrete alerting hormones. So I always think of that. It's like our child trying to go to bed after like five cappuccinos there. They may be tired, but their body feels wired. Mm-hmm. And so then they'll tend to wake up more during the night and wake up too early. So I always think it's, it's about operating within that circadian rhythm finding when those natural sleep windows are with our children and then helping them to be able to go to sleep during those times. Mm-hmm. And so what, what should a parent do if the baby won't stop crying 
And how can the baby learn to go back to sleep? What are some of those steps? I know you spoke about some of them, but are there yeah, other so ones? That mean they won't stop crying if they're if the parent is trying to do sleep training. Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that affect crying are this: the age of the child. So I think some of the the most easy magical time for sleep coaching is six to eight months, and then it gets progressively harder, but not impossible. It's important to know it's not impossible. Just harder, take a little bit longer, mainly because the child is can do more, has more stamina, can let's say stand up or try to climb out of the crib, you know, as they get older. So age of the child, the temperament of the child, how, you know, a very alert baby's Ones that tend to have more fragmented sleep, be more engaged in the world, have a harder time shutting down. They also um, have a link to slightly higher IQ. Those kids sort of like, you know, they they have a temperament like, I know what I want, when I want it, and I'm willing to hold out until I get it. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, a little harder to parent these kids. They are amazing children. Um, I've had a lot of them in my practice with, you know, their siblings. My second one is like this. She's now 18. And, you know, I just think that they're very sensitive and intuitive. They just need more help shutting the world out. Mm-hmm. And then the thing, the third thing that affects the amount of crying is how inconsistent you've been as a parent in sleep coaching. If you, this is your third attempt and you've tried cry it out and fervor and each time you've given up let's say after 30 minutes or three days of 30 minutes each time of crying then you have to know when you go to restart that your child i always tell parents i'd rather you plan i plan on them crying for 30 minutes because after all in the past when they've cried for 30 minutes you've abandoned ship and so we again i'm not talking about newborns i'm talking about older children and Mm -hmm. older babies. Mm -hmm. So that's important to know, you know, about what the crying means. I also never suggest that a parent start sleep coaching when a child is sick or has reflux that's not under control or any, you know, that they've gotten the green lights from the pediatrician. These are all important things to do before you start. And then the other thing is, is that you always start at bedtime, as I mentioned earlier, after a great day of naps, any way you can get them. So you're stacking the success on your favor mm-hmm. and in your baby's favor so that the crying can be less. And then I think you have to expect some crying because you're actually asking your child to learn a new skill and they don't understand why you've decided to change your mind. Like, why are you no longer rocking me to sleep or lying down with me and rubbing my back to sleep as older children? And mm-hmm. so when they're preverbal, they're going to cry. And when they're verbal, they're going to cry and have words for you. I don't want to do this. Why are we doing this? Why won't you lie down with me? Those kinds of things. So then it comes down to like, how do we respond to crying? So with babies, I have kind of all these little rules or reminders for the sleep lady shuffle the first three nights next to the crib. For instance, uh, not getting into a struggle about lying them down or repositioning them because you'll never win that one. Mm-hmm. If you pat, shush, hum, sing, do it intermittently. 
the third one could be you control the touch so you don't want them falling asleep holding your finger because you can imagine how what will happen you'll get your finger out they wake up it starts all over again mm. and then the fourth one which a lot of the other methods don't recommend but I do is to you can pick up to calm your baby mm-hmm. now I don't want you to pick them up and hold them to sleep but I want you to pick them up to calm them down. Because I do think that some babies can get to a point where they're crying. They don't even know why they're crying anymore. Mm-hmm. And they really need that help. Right. And so it's... You do all of those things until they're asleep. And I think it's important to say, Andrea, that if any parent starts a sleep coaching method, notice how I like to call it coaching instead of training. And if after three to five nights of real consistency, you don't see any change, I think you should stop. Mm. You should stop. You should go back to the drawing board, talk to a sleep coach, talk to your pediatrician, rule out once again any underlying medical conditions, and then really consider maybe that your child's not ready Mm -hmm. or you're not ready or you need to try a different method. Mm. I don't think that just keep going, keep going. You know, I hear about parents who've been doing, for instance, extinction three weeks, four weeks, like with no improvement, it, it means you have to, to stop and reevaluate. Right, right. So on your blog, you recently spoke about co-sleeping and the pros and cons of that and what it entails. Can you elaborate on your philosophy on co-sleeping? Yeah, it's a, such a hot topic that I have a whole blog category on co-sleeping. I think I have a, close to 20 articles um, on it. A lot of people who are pro co-sleeping think that I'm against it because one of the chapters in my book is, I think it's called ending co-sleeping. I'm actually not against co-sleeping. If you do co-sleeping safely, uh, which is very, very important, and you and it's working for everyone in the family, and you know it, which includes you know mom and dad, and most of all the baby, then I don't think you have a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. As long as it's working for the family, and, which includes everyone in the family, and you're doing it safely, then then go for it. What I usually see, of course, are the families where it's not working for. Mm-hmm. And they're doing, they either thought, oh, we're going to do this. This sounds really nice and lovely and, and sweet and caring. And, and, but we are falling apart. You know, the either now my husband is one of the parents is sleeping in another room and then the other parent who's sleeping with the baby or child is not getting any sleep and is starting to feel sort of resentful about it. Mm. Then then it's time for a change or or family has said, you know what, we've um, delightfully co-slept for, you know, a year and now we're ready to transition our baby to a crib and in and, and into their own room. Mm-hmm. And that's when think a gradual, gentler method. And some parents also are co-sleeping. They're doing what's called reactive co-sleeping. And that means that they are co-sleeping because there's no other way to get their child to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's not the foundation of co-sleeping. Right. Uh, you, and usually that's done not safely because you're not sort of prepared. You're just bringing your baby into your comfy feather top mattress with lots of pillows and blankets because you're ready to fall to your knees in exhaustion. Mm. And that's, of course, a huge portion of, of the people who call me. Right. Reactive co-sleeping. Right. Now, 
Uh, how can my listeners get connected with you? And are there any additional resources that you'd like to share with my audience? Yeah. My main website is sleeplady.com. And on there, you can read about my books, which are also available in bookstores and Amazon. The Sleep Lady's Good Night Sleep Tight is my main one. And I have a workbook and a gift book. And I also have lots of um, helpful free articles, thousands on my blog. I also have two online courses, one for parents of babies under six months and one for parents of children and babies six months to six years. And then I also have an online help center for not only sleep, but potty training, help behavioral consults for children with special needs, some conscious discipline and stress management and anxiety. So lots of resources for parents that all can be accessed from sleeplady.com. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for being on the show. I really enjoyed having you. And I think a lot of the things that we covered today will be very valuable for a lot of our listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. And I, and I hope that parents find this helpful. Great. Well, there you have it. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Kim. You basically can find the show notes with the links from this podcast by going to truepotentialcounseling.com. Please feel free to write any comments or reviews and sharing it with anybody that you think would benefit from today's podcast. Here at True Potential Counseling, we have some interesting things coming up. You can join us for the Create a Relationship You Love Challenge, where you can get access to a free three-part video series to create a relationship you love. You can go and access these free videos at createarelationshipyoulove.com. Thank you so much, and we look forward to catching you next time on Relationship Lovecast. Thanks for listening to Lovecast by True Potential at www.truepotentialcounseling.com. 